I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And then our scripture reading for today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, the vine and the branches. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, He is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. A great promise here. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Thank you, Al show my age here a little bit, but in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a Christian artist named Keith Green, and he would say this, he is divine, and we are the branches. John 15, 1 to 8, is the seventh of the I am statements recorded in the Gospel of John. He is the vine, we are the branches, we must remain in him in order to bear Fruit, just as a deep-sea diver survives under the water by breathing oxygen sent down from above, so God's people grow and they serve on earth because they have a living connection with Jesus Christ in heaven and abide in him. Jesus made it abundantly clear, apart from me, you can do nothing. So Lord, uh, we pray that you would have your way today, that your word would produce fruit, and accomplish exactly what you want it to accomplish today, in Jesus' name, amen. And so we come to the 15th chapter of John, and just to set the stage a little bit, starting in verse 13 and running through chapter 16, we find ourselves on Thursday night of Passion Week, the last week of our Lord's ministry. Thursday night was a very important night. Uh, He gathered the 12 disciples to celebrate the Passover on that Thursday night, and that's when the Galilean Jews would celebrate it, and they met together in kind of a secret place that we call the Upper Room, and our Lord spent that night telling them many wonderful things, giving them many, many promises, and as the night moved on, our Lord exposed Judas as a traitor, 
and basically dismissed him. And Judas left to go meet the leaders of Israel and to arrange for the arrest and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the time we come to chapter 15, Judas is gone and only the 11 are left. And they are the true disciples. But as we come to chapter 15, they are no longer in the upper room. In fact, it's deep into the dark of night because chapter 14 ends with Jesus saying this, get up, let us go from here. So apparently at that time, they left the upper room, Jesus and the 11, and they began their walk through Jerusalem, you know, headed out uh, the east side of the city to a garden where the Lord would pray and prayer so agonized that he would sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And while he was praying, they would fall asleep. And into that garden later would come Judas and the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders to arrest him. And there, Judas would kiss him. The betrayal would take place. And the next day, Jesus would be crucified. And as they leave the upper room and walk through the darkness of Jerusalem, I think our Lord continues to, to speak with them. And I think that's what's recorded here in John 15, as well as John 16. So John 15, 1 to 8, it's really a word picture, is it not? It's really a metaphor. It's really like a a simile. He is the vine. We are the branches. Now, it should be pretty obvious from the final sentence what the point of these eight verses is. This is about a vine and branches and fruit bearing that proves someone to be a true disciple. It's about what I want to call, it's about the genuine nature of salvation. Verse 8, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I mean, this is a concern of our Lord. It's a concern to all Bible writers. This is a concern to all faithful Christians. It's been throughout history, a great concern. How does one know that one is a true disciple? How does one know that one is like genuinely headed toward heaven? How does one know that he or, he or she will escape hell? How do we know that? Nothing is more important than this. Nothing is more important than salvation. Nothing is more important than eternal life. Nothing is more important than heaven. How do you know? In this word picture, I think we have everything that we need to know. Before we look at the nature of salvation, also in verses 1 to 8, are statements about the nature of Christ. And so before we get into the nature of salvation, we have to acknowledge the nature of Christ. The nature of the Lord Jesus Christ is here declared in verse 1. He says, I am the true vine. And then in verse 5, he says, I am the vine. Again. And so... By saying this, Jesus is really claiming to be God. How is this a claim to deity? Because of that verb. We've talked about this before in this series of the I am. The verb I am, way back in Exodus chapter 3. I think Hermie preached that the very first sermon. When Moses came before God in the wilderness, in that burning bush, and asked his name, God said, my name is I am that I am. The eternally existent one. The one of everlasting being. The always is, always was, always will be one. He is the great I am that we just sang about last week. We've talked about those claims throughout the Gospel of John. He says, I am the bread of life. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. Last week, Pastor Hermes preached on I am the way and the truth and the life. And then Jesus makes this stunning, inescapable claim in chapter 8 and verse 58. He said, before Abraham was, I am. 
In other words, before Abraham was born, I am eternally existing. Jesus is none other than the great I am who spoke to Moses out of that burning bush, the eternal God in human flesh. Is it important to believe that? I mean, you say, what's the big deal, Dave? Well, listen to John 8, verse 24. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Can I say it another way? If you don't believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll go to hell. No matter how religious you are, how moral you are, how well intentions, you know, your intentions might you know, measure up with the, the best of humanity, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you will go to hell. I mean, if you think he's like another created being, like, like every other person, you'll go to hell. You'll die in your sins, which means you'll die without forgiveness. And the penalty is eternal punishment. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. It's written right down in John chapter 8, verse 24. And the Jews understood exactly what he was saying. I mean, it's a shocking, devastating assault, really, on Jewish theology. Think about this. Their theology had kind of deviated from the scriptures, the Old Testament, but it was a well-developed system. Jesus attacked that theology. He attacked their understanding of God. He attacked their understanding of the law. He attacked their understanding of righteousness. He attacked their perspective on works and faith and grace. He attacked all the elements of their theology, and then if if that isn't bad enough, that caused them to hate him, then he claims to be God, which they see is the ultimate blasphemy, and that becomes the reason that they want him dead. So here, on the final night with his disciples, he reveals another powerful declaration of his divine nature, and he says, I am the true vine. He says, I am the vine. The nature of Christ. Well, what about the nature of salvation? You know, the metaphor, the analogy, I think is simple. There's a vine. uh, There's a vine dresser. uh, There are two kinds of branches. uh, Branches that bear fruit and are pruned to bear more fruit. And branches that don't bear fruit, they're cut off, dried, burned. You know, very simple. That's verse 2, right? Jesus said, I am the vine. The true vine, in verse 1, he said, my father is the farmer or the vine dresser. And so we know the vine is Christ. And the farmer, the vine dresser who planted the vine and cares for the vine is the father. But the question is, who are the branches? I mean, there are branches attached to him. And they're all attached. All the branches are attached. Uh, Some are pruned. But the ones that don't bear fruit are cut off, dried, and burned. And so who are they? Well, let me remind you of the context. The context goes all the way back to chapter 13 in the upper room. I think it's pretty clear that there are two types of disciples in that upper room. Jesus is there, John 13, verse 1, very aware that his hour of death is coming. And it says, having loved his own, he now showed them the full extent of his love. However, there was somebody else there. One of those disciples attached to Jesus was Judas. In John 13, verse 2, it says, The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Now, I don't really think there's a lot of mystery about the two branches. What did Jesus have in mind 
in his mind that night. I mean, they had just left the upper room, and that drama had taken place there over Judas, the exposure of Judas and the disciples. Uh, you know, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they said, you know, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Which is to say they had no idea, really, that it was Judas. And there was nothing really manifestly, you know, obvious in the life and the character and behavior of Judas that would have, you know, distinguished him as a false disciple. He was visibly attached. And for all intents and purposes, he looked like everybody else. And he did what everybody else did. And, but clearly, there are two kinds of people in that room that night. There were those who bore fruit, and there was the one who did not. And there were those who remained, you know, abiding in, remaining in, attached to the vine. And there was that one who's cut off. Now, I don't think that this passage, John 15, is teaching you that you can lose your salvation. Remember, Jesus just said in John chapter 10, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and I give unto them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. In other words, me and the Father, we've got a good grip on these sheep. I call it, it's the grip of grace. Thank God for that. And in John chapter 6, Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I'll lose none of them. I mean, this is not talking about believers, fruit-bearing branches that all of a sudden are cut off and thrown into hell. This is talking about people who are attached, but there's no life because there's no fruit. Judas had that very night, just a few hours before, he walked away from Jesus. He kissed the door to heaven, and he went straight to hell. John 6, remember Jesus said, have I not chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? Judas was never a true believer. Are you kidding me? He is what the Bible would call an apostate. He's like the ultimate defector. He had been for three years in close, you know, so close to Jesus that people didn't even know there was no life. Judas was now on his way to the leaders of Israel to set up this deal to arrest Jesus, to get his 30 pieces of silver, and to go from there to hang himself and just catapult himself to hell. This is the reality of that night, and this has to be what's behind our Lord's thinking and speaking here. I mean, he needs to explain to these men, Judas... I mean, wouldn't it seem natural to you that in this like intimate talk with the beloved 11 that are still with him, that they're still all trying to figure this out, trying to process Judas? I mean, he was one of the 12. He saw all the miracles. He went out to preach with the 70. He spent three years with the others under the ministry of the Son of God. He was the one who carried the money. I mean, they were trying to figure out just you know, how did this happen? Who is Judas? How does he fit? What's going on here? And our Lord gives us an explanation. And he says, there are branches that have an outward appearance of attachment, but bear no fruit. They're taken away and they're burned. And he has to be thinking of Judas. Judas, who is in close connection to him, has left on his way to eternal hell. And in fact, the Bible says, 
in Acts 1.25 that he went to his own place. And in Mark chapter 14, it says it would have been better for him had he never been born. And so in John 15, Jesus helps us to understand the elements, really, of the analogy he is the vine, the Father is the vine dressers. The branches that bear fruit are the true disciples, and the branch that bears no fruit, cut off and burned, is a false disciple. And that's what the text seems to be saying. There are, in the kingdom of God, possessors of life and professors of life. Like Matthew 7, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into my kingdom. There are people who build like religious houses, but they're built on sand, and they're not built on the rock. And the church is made up of sheep and goats. The church is made up of tares and wheat. And there are believers in every church. People who make you know, an outward profession of faith, but their profession is not true. They're like invaders into the body of Christ. They are tares and they grow among the wheat. And the warning here is that there will be unbelieving people in the church with true Christians, but they are fruitless. They make a profession of faith, but they are like clouds that are just like empty of water. They have the outer appearance of faith, but they don't bear fruit. And we're not describing Christians here who don't bear fruit because there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't bear fruit. If you don't bear fruit, that's a clear indication that you're not a believer. It's like you're dead wood, you know, trying to attach yourself to the true vine. So as we look at this metaphor, I think a lot of truths kind of unfold for us to consider. Let's start with the vine. First, the first character in this picture, the vine, Christ himself. I am the true vine. I am the vine. Jesus, I think, chose to see himself as a vine, to present himself as a vine. And he had earlier in chapter 10, right, he presented himself as a shepherd with a flock. And he had earlier presented himself as light. And he had earlier presented himself as bread. And so he, he drew from fam- familiar things, familiar analogies. And you might say, well, he referred to himself as a vine because a vine is lowly. You know, a vine is in the earth and in lowliness. And the vine, if it weren't propped up with some kind of wire or something, would just kind of run along the ground. And it speaks of his lowliness. It's a good metaphor to speak of his his humility or his lowliness. And somebody else might say, well, it's a good metaphor because it speaks of, of union. And it speaks of the closeness, the communion of those who belong to Jesus. You know, the very same life that's flowing through the vine is flowing through the branches. And then others might say, well, it's a good symbol. It's a good word picture because it talks about fruit bearing. It talks about fruitfulness. The result of being in Christ is just manifest. And others would say, well, it illustrates dependence. You know, as our Lord said, without me, you can do nothing. It illustrates kind of a a connection. It illustrates a, a dependence. And then You know, all the life comes from the vine. It emphasizes belonging. And if you are connected, you belong. And I think all of that is true. But there is another, I think, much more important reason why he says, I am the true vine. And that's because there was a defective vine. 
There was a corrupted vine. There was a degenerate vine. There was a fruitless vine. There was a, an empty vine. Who? Israel. Israel. That's right, the covenant people of God, the Jewish people. Israel is God's vine in the Old Testament. Read Isaiah chapter 5. Israel is presented as a vine. And God says, I planted my vine, my vineyard, in a very fertile hill. In Isaiah 5, it goes on to talk about everything God did to give them all that was necessary for them to bring forth grapes. But they produced bushim. It's a Hebrew word for sour berries. Bushim, inedible, useless berries. Israel was the vine, and that metaphor carried through the history of Israel, even during the Maccabean period between the Testaments, the Maccabeans printed coins, and on the coin was this vine illustrating Israel. And on the very temple, you know, Herod's massive temple, there's this great vine that literally had been carved and overlaid with gold, speaking of Israel as God's vine. I mean, you read Psalm 80. It tells us of the tragedy of Israel's defection as a vine. God planted Israel and then turned on Israel in judgment. Psalm 80 says, O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Even the shoot which your right hand has planted, it is burned with fire, it is cut down. Yeah, that's Israel. That's Israel. Ezekiel said, it is an empty vine, no fruit. Isaiah says it produces sort of a toxic, useless, inedible results. Israel had been blessed. Israel had been planted by God. His life would come through Israel to all who attached to Israel, but Israel was unfaithful. Israel was idolatrous. Israel was immoral, and God brought judgment. It almost reminds me of America. And that's what the Old Testament lays out for us about Israel. And the disciples, like all the other Jews, thought, hmm, I'm Jewish. I'm connected to God. Israel, the people of God, the Jewish people are the source of divine blessing. I'm a Jew. I was born a Jew. I'm the seed of Abraham. I'm connected to God. Not so. Not so. Our Lord comes along and he says, if you want to be connected to God, you've got to be connected not to Israel, but to me. I'm the true vine. Alethanos, it means true, it means genuine. I am the genuine vine. I'm the true vine. I'm the perfect vine. And through me, the life of God flows. And Paul understood that. He was a good Jew. He said Israel had all the privileges in the book of Romans, but they have a form of godliness, but they have no life. They don't know God. They're alienated from God. He's the true vine. Jesus is. Just to give you a comparison, in the eighth chapter of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer uh, says Jesus is the true tabernacle. You see all this stuff in the Old Testament? It was just shadows of the reality of Christ. And Jesus says, I'm the true vine. It's through him that the life of God flows. Colossians 2.7. We are rooted and built up in him, these disciples know Israel is going to be destroyed. They know the temple is going to be destroyed. He's already told them that just, you know, he told them that just hours before this, and they know it's all coming crashing down. It's over. He pronounced judgment on them, not one stone upon another. The fury of God is going to be unleashed. It's important that we understand 
that the source of blessing is not Israel. The Apostle Paul said, not all Israel is Israel. Christ is the true vine. He's the true tabernacle, Hebrews 8, 12. He's the true light, John 1, 9. He's the true bread, John 6, 32. And he's the true vine, John 15, 1. Anybody who's gonna know the life of God has got to connect to him, to Jesus. And he has to connect to him genuinely as God, as the I am. All the other vines are false vines. Israel is a degenerate, dead vine. Christ is the true and living vine. And Isaiah says, Israel, as a vine, has run wild. Jeremiah says, Israel has become a degenerate plant, a strange vine. It's as if Jesus was saying to those men, you think that because you belong to the nation of Israel that you're secure in your connection to God? Not so. You think that just because you're a Jew and a member of the chosen race that you're connected to the blessing of God? Not so. I'm the vine. And life flows only through me. And just like Hermie preached last week, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he is the vine. The second character in this picture uh, is the vine dresser. The Father is the vine dresser in verse 1, and that's the farmer, the vine dresser, the person who cares for the vine. Christ pictures himself as having been planted by God. And that's true. The Father was behind everything that Jesus did. The Father sent the Son into the world, right? You know, God so loved the world, he sent his only Son. Oh, that's what the Scripture says. The Father kind of laid out the plan, and Jesus said, you know, I only do the will of my Father. I only do what the Father tells me to do, shows me to do, commands me to do. I only do what pleases the Father. The Father cared for him. The Father provided a virgin so that he could be virgin-born. The Father provided everything for him. The Father provided the Holy Spirit to empower him through the ministry. The Father provided everything that he needed. So it was the Father caring for the Son. And it is the Son who is the one who possesses true divine life. Now verse 2 says there are two kinds of branches. They all appear in me. It says every branch in me. You get that? They're all attached Just like there were lots of people kind of attached to Israel in the past. But not all Israel is Israel. And not everyone who's a Jew is really connected to blessing. They were attached. They were connected. But there were branches that it says at the beginning of verse 2 that do not bear fruit. And he takes those away. The Father does. The Father is the judge. And then there were branches that bear fruit, and he pruned those so that they would bear more fruit. You see, the Father is at work, and he's doing two things, very divine works, two very divine works. He's judging false branches, cutting them off, drying them out, sending them to hell. And he's pruning true fruit-bearing branches. This is the Father's work. The true believers get pruned, and the false believers get judged. Now, let's look at these branches and Just consider what it's saying here. The vine is like flourishing and growing and luxuriantly, but some serious steps are taken by the vine dresser, the farmer. First of all, when he sees a branch that has no fruit, he takes it away. That's what it says. He takes it away. And down in verse 6, it says he throws it away. It dries up. Those branches are gathered, cast into the fire, and they're burned. 
And that's a, dra- a drastic judgment by God on false believers. No fruit. You say, does every Christian have fruit? Yes. Every Christian has fruit. That's how you know you're a Christian. What is fruit? Righteous attitudes. Righteous longings. Righteous desires. Righteous affections. Righteous virtues. Righteous behaviors. This is the manifestation of life and where the life of God exists. The fruit must be there. That's why Ephesians 2.10 says that we've been saved by grace through faith unto good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. It can't not be that way because where there is the life of God in the soul of a man, it becomes manifest, it becomes evident. And that's what it says at the end of verse eight. When you bear much fruit, you prove to be a true disciple. And James says faith without works is what? It's dead, it's useless. The only way you know faith is real, salvation is real, is by the evidence. I mean, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, you know, you'll know them by their fruit. And that's repeated a number of times in the Gospels. And Paul says in Romans 6, he says, you were slaves to sin. But now in Christ, you become slaves of righteousness. We're known by our fruit. We're known by the manifest evidence of transformation. And that's the only way you can tell a person's a Christian, not by like remembering an event or not by remembering a prayer, not by some wishing or hoping, you know, the way you know someone has been transformed and regenerated or born again is because of the fruit of righteousness that is manifest in their life. And let me say, point 18, my, on my 21 points there, I listed all these points to ponder. Number 18, okay, it's, it's not perfection. Don't get me wrong here, but it's this dominating direction. We turn away from the idols and we move towards the living God. It's that dominating direction in our life. There are people who attach to Christ and are totally fruitless. Look, the whole nation of Israel is seen in chapter 11 of Romans as a branch attached to God, but they were cut off because of unbelief, because of sin, and a new branch, the church, was grafted in. They had an attachment to God, but it was fruitless. There are many people who are attached to Christianity, many people that are attached to the church, attached some way to Christ, but time and truth go hand in hand. Give it enough time, the truth is going to come out. And ultimately, either in this life or the next, for sure in the next, I mean, the Father will send them to the fire. And this is a concern all through the Gospel of John. In fact, in chapter 6, many of his disciples walk no more with him. Remember that? It's a call to true discipleship. There are, there are Judas branches in every age superficially attached. But let's look at the possessing branches in verse 2. Every branch that bears fruit evidencing the life of God. He prunes it so that it might bear more fruit. So the father does the hard work. He completely like whacks off uh, the entire branch that is fruitless so it doesn't suck the energy out of the vine uselessly. They're gathered and then they're burned. That's what the text says. But he comes back at the fruitful branches and he prunes them. He purges them. And the word is katharsa, katharas. And that word, it means to make clean. 
And it was used in agriculture for pruning. It could mean removing waste uh, matter after winnowing grain. It could mean cleaning weeds out of the soil before planting grain. It can also mean anything that cleans the plant to make it more productive. And so God, you know, whacks some branches completely off false believers who spend eternity in hell. But for the rest of us, God goes to work on us with the knife. In ancient times, I've read that sometimes there was like this pinching process, and I've watched my wife and Susie Henderson and others who help with some of the flowers out there pinch things off. Uh, It even started, you know, with a hand between the first finger and the thumb to literally pinch the end of a growing shoot that could cause it to die. And there was sort of a removal of kind of a, a dead end of a branch, and then there was the the thinning of all the the sucker pieces uh, coming off that branch. Lots of ways to do that, but all of them had the same purpose in mind. And that was so that the branch would be more productive. And that's the work of the Father. The Father, you know, comes into our lives with a knife to cut away sin. And in Hebrews 12, 1, it says laying aside the weight, right? The weight and the sin. You know, we all have sin in our lives. And it ought to be cut off. But we also have stuff that doesn't necessarily get categorized, you know, as sin. It's just like unnecessary, uh, wasted, superfluous sucker branches. And the Father comes along in our lives with a knife, and it's painful. And he cuts, he cuts sin, he cuts useless, wasteful behavior, preoccupation with things that don't matter. And how does he do that? He might do it through sickness. He might do it through hardship. He might do it through a loss of a job or a loss of a friend or a loss of a loved one or loss of material goods. He might do it through the, the loss of reputation or slander. He might do it through failure. He might do it through persecution from people outside and also from people that you know and love. He might do it through grief. He might do it through disappointment. It can be extremely painful emotionally. It can be extremely painful physically. God orders trouble. God orders trouble. I know this is not the name it and claim it gospel. God orders trouble. Read your Bible. He orders it. And God is, this is God sovereignly and providentially using the knife, and God will trouble us if it will help us grow and produce more fruit. God will trouble. He uses trouble to purge us and to discipline us. The best thing that can happen to us, to prune us, is trouble. 2 Corinthians 12, when I am weak, the Apostle Paul says, right, then I'm what? I'm strong. I would rather be content with afflictions, difficulties, weaknesses, trials, because in my weakness, God's strength is perfected. James 1, count it all joy when you fall into various trials because the testing of your faith produces patience, and patience has a perfecting work. Peter puts it this way, after you've suffered a while... The Lord makes you perfect. That's the knife. You want to welcome that because you want to be more fruitful. 
I mean, you can go ahead and swim in your self-pity. Go for it. You can wallow around in disappointment, complaining, brooding, full of anxiety when things don't go the way you think they ought to go. Or you could look to heaven. You could look to God and say, thank you, God. Thank you for working on me to bear more fruit. You could say, why me, God? Why me? Why did this happen to me? How could it ever be? Or you could say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I embrace this like the Apostle Paul. I embrace this like James. I count it all joy. I embrace this because this pruning means God intends for me to bear much fruit. Another way to look at it is in the language of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12. Listen to what he says. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he has received. Endure hardship as discipline. What son is not disciplined by his father? God is treating you as sons. But if you're without discipline, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. God disciplines us for our good, so that we might share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, later on, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. More fruit. More righteousness is the product of divine discipline. Trials, tribulation, trouble. The believer is almost to expect this to be fruitful. And I want to add something here. The vine dresser has a knife. What exactly is the knife? Verse 3 answers that. You're already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. You've already been saved and you were saved you know, through the word, right? You know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You were saved by believing the word. It was the word that did its work in you. You're born again by the word of truth, scripture says, and you will also be pruned by the word. And when the dust settles, it's not the afflictions themselves that are the knife. It's the word of God that's the knife. And let me explain that. The word of God is a knife. I mean, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's a two-edged knife, and it cuts in every way. The word does, the truth of God. And so here's the idea. The father is the discipliner. The father is the one who in his providence brings about trials and troubles That cause us concern. And the word becomes, however, the actual cutting instrument. Because when the trial comes and we react wrongly, the word convicts us. The word cuts into our disrespect for God's purposes and his sovereignty. The word cuts into our hostility. The word cuts into our anger. The word cuts into our questioning. And it indicts us. Trials are the handle of the knife. The blade is the word of God. The father brings the trial, but the blade is the word of God. The word is the knife. Listen how Charles Spurgeon 
great preacher from about a century ago. Here's how he put it. He says, it is the word that prunes the Christian. It is the truth that purges him. The scripture made living and powerful by the Holy Spirit eventually and effectively cleanses the Christian. And he says, he goes on to say, affliction is the handle of the knife. Affliction is the grindstone that sharpens the knife. But the knife is the word. Affliction gets us ready for the knife. Affliction removes our garments and lays bare the diseased flesh so that the knife may get at it. Affliction makes us ready for the knife to feel the word of God. So the true pruner is God. And affliction is the handle and the occasion. But the pruning, the scripture, is the knife that cuts. Why? So that we would bear more fruit. The more you know the word, the more you love the word the better you react to trials, right? The more you allow the knife to do its work. You know, we need to be submissive to the word of God. We need to know it so well that when we get into these issues of life that surround us, whatever they might be, these disappointments, these elements of suffering and trial that are so much a part of everybody's life, that we know the word of God. And we not only know it, but we actually trust it. And we not only trust it, we actually love it. And we not only love it, but we want it to do its work. And so we submit to the knife. You know, if there's any fruit that comes out of Calvary, I know. I know it's because every once in a while people suffer But they let the word of God do its work, bringing conviction and cutting away the sin and the things that really don't matter anyway. And that's how it is in the kingdom. That a lot of people attach to Christ. Some will be cut off and burned. Some bear fruit and those that bear fruit, the Father works on to bear more fruit, much fruit, And that's the kingdom. And we want to be fruit-bearing branches. The word remain is meno. In the Greek language, it's used 11 times in John chapter 15. 11 times. You think that's important? Remain, it's translated abide. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. I wrote this on the back of the bulletin. And I want you to hear this. The better we know Jesus, the more we will love him. The more we love him, the more we will obey him. The more we obey him, the more we will abide in him. The more we abide in him, the more fruit we bear. And the more fruit we bear, the more we will experience life overflowing. And people will know that we are Christians by the love that we have for each other. It's kind of like a chain reaction. And it begins with our decision to spend quality time with the Lord every day. Important word. Remain, meno, abide. And I challenge you to memorize John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it shall be done. Amen. Well, I don't want you to leave here like thinking you're a Christian and you're not. And I wonder what Judas thought when he was 
ministering with the 12. I wonder if he knew. You know, but if you are wanting to become a Christian, you know, you can talk to me anytime. Just call me up on the phone. We can talk about that and get that straightened out. And, uh, you know, our country is in need of prayer. I, I, in my humble opinion, I think the Equality Act is... Um, I don't, I don't think that's going to be a good thing for the church. I'm praying about that. and I hope you uh, desire to be salt and light in this world as believers, as you're connected to the vine. So, you know, Jesus said, I am the true vine. And he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it shall be done. He's looking for some fruit. Righteousness is what he's looking for. Righteousness. Amen.